performance and art as a means of kind of holding a mirror up in the world. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. We're here with our special guest today, Rachel Moran. Today is a lot of fun for me personally. Rachel, thank you for coming on the show. We've known each other for a really long time, sort of grew up more like cousins. Recently, uh, we've connected more over like mental health kind of stuff. And I think it would be good to tell listeners about a little bit about your background and kind of what you've been up to lately. So my background is I, I was an actress and a singer with a bachelor's in fine arts from NYU, grew up acting and performing, and then segued into uh, the entertainment business, managing actors. And I spent pretty much uh, a little more than a decade uh, doing that. And recently, I have been looking to kind of take that experience counseling artists and move into the sphere of mental health, specifically with a focus on social work and and therapy, mental services, uh, based on my experience counseling artists, you know, in all walks of their lives. Yeah. I mean, you had said something really interesting when we were thinking about just talking about sort of the intersection between uh, performing arts um, or any, you know, creativity really, and the feelings involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I tend to think of artists in all uh, disciplines as people with complex emotional experiences and inner lives uh, who mean to creatively express their vision of the world and their experience through, you know, their chosen medium. You know, in my experience, both acting, training as an actress, and and speaking to young artists, I hear a lot of sort of the overwhelming richness of inner emotional experience and how that translates into the really beautiful desire to create. I like to think about performance and art as a means of kind of holding a mirror up in the world in which we can see ourselves in the kind of the good Greek sense of catharsis if we're talking about classical theater all the way up to, I mean, like stand-up comics actually are kind of a great parallel to that. You know, we have this inner turmoil, these complex emotions and desires and drives. And sometimes we don't know what to do with that, but it can be a really beautiful experience to either, you know, filter that into painting or music or performance in a way that you you tell a story, you experience all of these emotions and, and aspects of your life that can otherwise be a little bit messy. And you tie them up with a neat little bow so that your audience and the people who are watching you can in turn experience a, a little bit of validation for the messiness in their own lives. There's a kind of an inner pain that people can <laughs> tap into. Sure. Inner pain, inner joy. I think one of the, um, look, as human beings, maybe we, we experience marriage once or twice in our lives, uh, extreme loss, extreme ecstasy. Not that Maybe not that many times, but when you are able to work and, and channel your emotional experience into that life of a character and tell a story, you sometimes have an ex- experience and an opportunity to kind of experience these highs and lows many, many times and through many other eyes. What I also have noticed from a very early early point in my own performance training was that there is sometimes a tendency for 
performing artist actors to be a little bit emotionally addicted. You know, one person is having an extreme emotional experience on stage telling a story. And the actors watching in class, for example, or in an audience are really chopping at the bit at the edge of their seat, feeding off of that experience. Um, I almost liken it a little bit to some version of what adrenaline addicts must have. And I've seen it so many times that I think that there must be some validity there. But I, I also think that, you know, having a wealth of inner life, a wealth of inner emotional experience can drive any number of people toward disciplines and creativity. And that's why I believe you see, you know, so many famous artists musicians, performers who admittedly, you know, struggle with mental health issues. Um, and in, in some ways, you know, there is no division. That is who you are. That is your personality. That is in some ways what makes your perspective special and, and can be a great thing. Well, how do you connect that what you're describing is kind of an emotional addiction or an adrenaline junkie response? I, I thought of the term uh, emotional base jumping. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes, at least in performance art, when you are in training, a lot of what you're doing is stripping away socially constructed reactions and getting it whatever your knee-jerk core is. So, like, if you watch people doing Meisner training, for example, which is is really about, like, it's not what words you're saying, it's what you're actually emotionally experiencing in response to stimulus, in response to another person, in response to struggle. So, you know, I think that some of, some of that work is about finding a safe space, whether it's through storytelling or art, in order to be a bit volatile, to be honest, to experience in a contained uh, scenario the safety of that volatility, where it's okay to break down and cry in service of your art, or to have an ecstatic, joyous, like, hysterical laughing moment. And it's not weird. It's just, you know, what you're doing in the scope of a story. But also, I mean, like, yes, I it feels pretty good. It's liberating. There's something great about, you know, having these unfettered moments of just pure joy or whatever it might be. Um, and I think, you know, as humans watching entertainment and performance, we connect with that. We feel and see ourselves in those reactions. You know, look to the moments of freedom where you can just experience what you feel without being constrained. Without needing to take drugs. Look, it's interesting that you mentioned drugs because I think there's so much dual diagnosis in the arts. Dual diagnosis is the coexistence of chemical dependency or alcohol dependency with underlying mental health issues. And I think in many cases, they feed off of each other. Um, you know, you might have a patient or, you know, a colleague or client with mental uh, mental health issues like depression. Depression is very common. Um, and then that person, you know, is trying to continue their lives, trying to function. Maybe they start to rely on alcohol as a crutch pretty common, that crutch starts to take on its own addictive life, or maybe there's underlying genetics that lends to it, you know, alcoholism in the family. The two interact in a really specific way. And a, a lot of it, I mean, there's a tremendous community of people, especially in entertainment, who are in sobriety, dealing with uh, the challenges, I mean, of course, the challenges of also being an entertainment professional are tremendous um, and the stresses that those entail, but also, you know, having um, depression. And I can, for a moment, I'll speak to this personally because I am 100% someone who's dealt with depression my whole life. It's in my family. And it also brought me into the art, experiencing that 
dealing with your feelings and finding a way to bring that into creative sphere where it can be serviceable to something other than just being depressed. You know, the difficulty that can happen, though, is like sometimes something brings you to the art. The art is a bit of a, a solvent. It's help. But then you realize, oh, if I'm in a show, I actually need to do this eight times a week. And that can become its own stressor. No, it provides structure. And then I would think um, there's periods of structure and then there's periods without structure, which could be quite difficult. I actually, I don't know why this just popped into my mind, but I was thinking about someone who already might be predisposed to low mood or anxiety. A career in entertainment is the most unpredictable, demoralizing, because it's like constant auditions, mostly rejection. Maybe there's some success, but then it's temporary or then it comes with a really high cost attached to it. So I'm wondering if you, I don't know, do you think about that? All the time. I mean, you know, there's so many times that in my personal coaching of artists, we talk about the balance between yourself and your art. The fact is, like, sometimes the work is very difficult. You're going to uncomfortable places. You're going there every day consistently. Maybe it's bringing up trauma. Maybe it's bringing up other other difficult things that are hard to hard to bear. And so then, then the task for the artist becomes, how do I leave my work in the moment? How do I come to this place, to this stage, to this safe space, and I give it my heart and my pain, and I act with complete generosity in that time? And then at the end, I say that it's okay to leave it there, that it's okay to say that was what I did here in this day, and then in my next moment, allow myself to change, allow myself to continue to be fluid. And I mean, a lot of a lot of people in, in my training, things like yoga were integral to the work we did because it was all about breathing, acceptance, release, you know, understanding that what you bring to maybe your yoga mat in the morning, you're maybe not having a great morning, maybe you had anxiety nightmares, whatever, and that you can breathe and change your muscles and move into a different, a different thought, a different function, and um, maybe change your day. And I think for people who struggle, especially with anxiety and depression, that is crucial because, you know, the perseverating thoughts in anxiety that can kind of like lead into the depression spirals can be so difficult to really, you know, when you talk to people who can't get out of bed in the morning. Um, and I've had clients like who, you know, missing auditions all the time, can't get there. And it's just this failure to start this fear. And I almost always know when I have a client like that, that they're dealing with anxiety and that they're dealing with performance anxiety. And that sometimes that's also the, this depression. And so it has to be about like, you know, the conversations become like, really, how are you? Like, how can we help you succeed? What do you need as a human being? Because this, this kind of work, you know, I, I'm somebody who's engaged in a lot of different art forms for myself. But when you put pain on a canvas, it, it lives outside of you. When you come into a room as yourself to perform, you don't get to have that divorced space. You are there in person and, and that's you on display. So it's about, you know, a lot of our, our conversations or my conversations with patients and clients has been, you know, trying to allow them to find separation and acceptance and positivity so that they can perform. Yeah. Do you, do you find that there's uh, different coping styles? Uh, like, would you see more avoidance uh, when anxiety comes up? And 
how much does it relate to the the tougher aspects of the profession where there might be rejection or even, even harassment? You know, I would find it difficult to get myself out of bed and go somewhere which is aversive for me. Like, how, how do you find that people talk themselves into that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it really depends on the personality. There are some people that crave constant validation, and that can kind of become its own motivating factor. But when it comes to anxiety aversive personalities, um, I think that it really becomes a struggle of getting yourself out of bed and going and not worrying about the end result. So, I mean, like with a lot of times with my clients, like I remind them that any audition is a separate, it's a separate performance and you leave it at the door. And that's the thing about performing, especially performing uh, in live performance, which unfortunately is really limited at this, this time in our life. But, you know, live performance is this ephemeral thing. You can't contain it. It's one moment in time. You're never going to repeat it exactly the same way. It just can't be. A happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's what's so compelling about live theater and any kind of live music performance is that you are engaged in the blood, sweat, and tears of some person in that very one moment that will never be the same moment again. One of the things that's really compelling and certain people, you know, really make their peace with auditioning and the rejection difficulty around it. But I think that, you know, one of the things that I keep reminding people and I always have is that there is really beauty in in that ephemeral nature and the ability to come in and give your performance in that moment and leave it there. And maybe it's the best thing you ever did. Maybe it's the worst. It doesn't matter. It's five minutes of your life, probably. And you have to let you go. can grow from that. Yeah, there's a lot of letting go of the results. And and I think that, you know, the idea of like positive action and I think move a muscle, change a thought, positive action taking action and living in the moment and trying to let go of judgment after the fact that doesn't serve you. Yeah. I mean, I just think that so many times and, and in, this goes for everybody, I think, you know, sometimes we undo ourselves wanting to do a good job, wanting to please other people, wanting to show our merits mm-hmm. um, instead of just coming to the table uh, as an authentic human being and, and living our lives and to our, you know, to the, the best extent and most honest, and kind way that we can. I mean, I think that's such a good point. And it's reminding me a little bit of when I was training, um, we used to have to record our sessions. Oh, training in, in psychiatry. In, in yeah, training, training, yeah, to be a therapist. We would record these sessions and then I'd have to bring them to a supervisor and watch them. And I couldn't handle the sound of my own voice, first of all. So it took a really long time for me to get comfortable with that. And then I found that it was like almost creeping into, you know, this session, I'd be thinking about how bad I'm going to sound or that I'm going to say the wrong thing. So I really wouldn't say anything at all. And it, that I think was probably the biggest hurdle. Absolutely. What's interesting is in acting, you know, um, the answer to that self-consciousness is almost always, at least in some of the methods I've trained in, I'm not a method actor, which is like all about the internal, you know, really crunching down. Um, but the in, the in the schools that I trained in, it was all about putting your focus on the other person. So in the moments that, you know, there are plenty of other times to your voice and speech work or mm-hmm. your, you know, your character work or your dance work or whatever it is. But when you are in the moment with another person, you best serve that moment by putting your focus in that person. That's that's such good advice. And I wish I had known that like six years ago. <laughs> you have to you have to do cognitive work during therapy. So yeah. you, you have to develop a facility with kind of at least two 
um, operating systems that you're kind of running at the same time. One of them is is witnessing and, and processing a bit and going in and out of the moment and then stepping out and reflecting. But but even even then, there's still like that meta level where no matter how much kind of complicated stuff you're doing, you're still um, could be witnessing yourself in a self-conscious way or in a non-judgmental way. There's always that sort of biggest envelope of the personality, which is either judging or not judging. Yeah, I mean, I think that the clinical analytical aspect, I mean, to some, to some extent, if I were to compare this to performance, it would be your script analysis versus, versus your stagecraft. You, I've spent hours and hours analyzing scripts and characters and writing and writing about writing. But when I get to the stage, when my performers get to the stage, you have to trust that you know those things that you were a good study, that you've taken the tools from the book and the learning and that you're bringing them with you and that they live inside of you so that you can listen to somebody else. And then in your mind, you might say, okay, the DSM-5 says, you know, these experiences, these reactions maybe speak to an insecure, you know, ego. Maybe this person has personality disorder. They don't have a stable sense of self. But in the meantime, you're just listening to a human being. You're listening to them talk about their life and their struggles. And then you can always come back and make, you know, assessments and recommendations based on that. But if you can't listen to them, then you can't do your job. You can also be thinking together with them. You know, I thought about performance because performance has these different meanings. One of them is more nuts and bolts, but the other is the the impl- implied pleasing the other person, like... Um, and, and the need to become part of a system and kind of let, let go. It always reminds me of the end of the first Star Wars movie where Luke Skywalker is attacking the Death Star and they only have one shot left at blowing it up. And he turns off his targeting computer because he hears Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to him. And they're like... Uh, you got to become one with the Force, Graham. Right? Let, let go, right? And trust your feelings. It's your Jedi and, mind trick. But then the, the people on the control on the control tower on the bridge of the command ship... They're like, Luke, you turned off your targeting computer. Like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing, Luke? Um, what, He's what was gone like? rogue. <laughs> right? And then, you know, he nails it. And then um, he gets an Oscar, I think. Sure. <laughs> um, but what was it like growing up, not growing up, but going to school at NYU? Um, I started school the year after 9-11. And it was still, you know, a real weird experience in the city. And I think that all the universities were really, um, were really adjusting around the kind of uh, cultural awareness of 9-11, how it had shifted our perceptions of the society, and how New York is, as a city was recovering. This is sort of just a, a fact that coexisted. My first year at NYU, there were like six suicides several of whom were people in my department. Um, And there was sort of like a scrambling on the part of mental health services at NYU to kind of come up with a uniform and um, more comprehensive way of addressing the fact that the student body wasn't adjusting well. And I mean, I think that they've gotten to a better place since I left, since I left, but I think that especially undergraduates at that time were kind of left wanting um, it was just a weird time. And I think, you know, I've spoken to other people since who were at other schools in the city like SBA 
for Columbia and different responses from different administrations to trying to figure out how to help their students adjust and prosper in the kind of post 9-11 era. You know, I remember at that time, downtown Manhattan was kind of a mess. There was like a dorm down there. It was weird for the kids that were down there. Being loose in the world as an 18-year-old artiste trying to figure stuff out. In the East um, Village. I did all kinds of all kinds of dumb shit. And I, I went to Wesleyan yeah. undergrad, which which Wesleyan was pr- pretty it's open. Cool. Lovely. Um, but not in mm-hmm. the city. And I, I imagine that a lot of the kids who I knew at Wesleyan who did a lot of exploring of things, had they been in a place like the city, it would have been <laughs> worse. Yeah, I mean, worse no whole barred, man. I mean, <laughs> there also was a, wasn't a lot. I'll be honest. There wasn't a lot of on-campus life that anyone wanted to participate in. So it kind of like drove us to explore the city. And I mean, which is great, but also, I mean, like we were, my friends and I are in all kinds of places, but also like, you know, uh, Brooklyn was just sort of an up and coming artist scene, always out in Williamsburg before it was as nice as it is now. Lots of stuff like that, checking out weird you know, art installations in downtown Brooklyn and Bushwick and wherever else people were living and could afford to live as young artists, oh, yeah. um, which comes up a lot, you know. I was friends with the guy so, who I mean, lived, like, uh, he lived over by uh, Avenue C, basically in, you know, a garage, you know, on the ground floor. But it was super, oh, yeah. super cool. I had an ex-boyfriend that lived in a converted, it used to be a firehouse. There was a pole yep. that went through the ceiling. And when we had parties, we had to cover up the hole so no one would fall through it. Yeah. Well, that's smart. Very responsible yeah, we were, of you. We were thinking ahead. She's a very good We were host. trying not to. Exactly. Don't exactly. fall through the hole yeah. in the floor. That actually happened to me <laughs> once. I fell through the hole in the floor of a... Uh, a dive bar, which is a pun also. Oh, no. It was a dive bar. and I, <laughs> like I broke, a dive. I, I was not even, you know, I, I, I hadn't been particularly drinking. I actually was sober, but there was an unfortunate um, uh, oh, neg- no. negligence on the part of the bar owners um, near the main thoroughfare. And, and, and I, I broke up, I broke my shoulder blade and two oh. ribs, which Ooh. was was really interesting. <laughs> It was very interesting, but so I wholeheartedly agree with covering any deadfalls during party events. Yeah. How, how about creativity during the pandemic? Because, um, you know, there's a lot of features of what we're living through and also the political environment uh, are somewhat reminiscent of 9-11 in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that anything as, as um, culturally traumatic as either, either of those events mentioned um, you know, is a time for pause, it's a time for reassessing. I mean, for me, I write almost every day, I write something. Um, And I was talking to a lot of young artists um, in the beginning, and I was like, I know it's weird not to go to auditions really in in that typical way, or they were doing Zoom auditions and, um, you know, things over just videotape, you know, uh, digital auditions. But, you know, the other thing is, I think that like, you can't just be a writer that writes about writing. You can't just be a performer that performs about being an actor. You need to go, like, find ways to enrich your life. Um, and I also believe that other, you know, whether your main mode of creativity is one thing or another, you identify one way. I think that it's important to find other means of creativity to explore and, and then uh, help that feed what you're doing. There are plenty of arts that, like, you know, you can do by yourself. You can paint. You can draw. You can write. And then use that to maybe find uh, another way of expressing performance art. Um, 
I've seen some stand-up comedians that are doing, you know, uh, Instagram live comedy sets, which are, can be a little wonky, but I think people have gotten better with. I mean, some people are trying to uh, shoot sketch over Zoom. A lot of uh, vocal artists, musical artists, because of the the tools that are, are digitally available to us now in terms of recording, you could record with somebody across the country and just use it together. So I actually think that in some ways, there are a lot of technological tools that are disposable that maybe weren't around 20 years ago that you can use to kind of create art in isolation. But the problem is the isolation, right? It's it's wanting to have a sense of community with other people. I think that um, even talking over Zoom, it's really nice. You, we're not in the same room together, guys, but there is a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of communication. So in some ways, I think we're lucky to have um, the technology and tools at our disposal to kind of try different things, get a little bit creative, um, because I think the isolated experience can be a bit overwhelming, especially for, especially for social animals. Yeah, I think that's um, what's tricky about this time is some people can really, you know, do what you were just talking about, you know, paint, um, write and and use the time in isolation to reflect. And for other people, it's, it is a little bit harder. I know that I've really struggled yeah. with this in a way that um, it's just hard for me to not see people in person to feel sort of constrained to the computer. But I know that there are many people uh, and there are many benefits of Zoom. I mean, before we were trying to record this uh, podcast in a studio and we never, never quite got into the swing of it. And it is convenient. Like it's like the extrovert introvert thing. Like certain people really positively feed off the energy of others. And that can be like a really great thing. I think especially like, you know, folks in in film and TV and and, uh, performance are struggling because you don't usually, unless you're doing a one person show, you don't usually create that stuff by yourself. So, you know, trying to have that human experience in, in groups can be tough and you know I look forward to a time hopefully in the near future where we can go to concerts again and plays and people can do improv and whatever else because I think that there are special things that help it happen in life in groups that you know this digital medium is great but I don't think it is a replacement I find it really messes with my timing I still think you're funny though (laughs) I'm not trying too hard We're, we have, I got these cards at the, the local uh, little village postal shop. Um, they sell, not incidentals, there's some word. Oh, I know what you're talking about. But yeah, I, not accessories, nice, but anyway. They're nice called, to support the small Yeah, they're, So yeah. these cards are called Actually Curious. Ooh, like party game? Yeah, it's like a party <laughs> game. This version, the pink version is like the light version. Not not too um, not too personal, but so I'll ask you to pick a card at random. I'm going to fan them in front of the Zoom, and you'll pick one. And then if if you want to pass, I'll pick another one. Say when. When. Okay. When. Good enough. Tell us about a beauty or style trend that you um. are embarrassed to admit you took part in. Uh, so I used to have a lot of piercings, so I guess that's a style trend. I remember, like, I got my eyebrow pierced when I was, like, 16, and I was trying to convince my dad it was fake. Um, <laughs> and came home, and and I was, my dad, like, it wears very thick glasses, so I told him that it was a magnet, or I, like, had a nose piercing, and I was like, oh, it's the sticker. Um, I didn't know that part. That lasted for, like, a day. <laughs> and then my mom was like that's definitely not a fake um so yeah yeah i had a lot of 
piercings in my late teens and early 20s that I, I am now taken out yeah. but um the eyebrow yeah. piercing was so cool though I've always wondered and you those. really liked oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked it sneak I out it of like family <laughs> gatherings sneak around yeah. hardcore go okay. sneak around have a cigarette yeah to sell it a cigarette yep. is like the lung uh, equivalent of a tattoo or a piercing yeah exactly uh, mark there. thank god I quit you want yeah. to do another? Okay, sure. You pick one. Feeling brave? Whatever you think. Okay, Farrah, do you yeah, want to do go, one? Go. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> I spend blank hours a day on social media. That's not a good one, but for you, go ahead. Zero. <laughs> actually, actually, now. We're working, we're working on it. Oh, but actually, this is a good way to close because we haven't talked about, so my friend Beth is doing the social media. Rachel, I think you see the account, and so she's posting. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good way to learn about it. I've never been on Instagram before. I still don't really get it, but people can follow us on Instagram, I think is the point. Doorknob what comments. is your Instagram handle? Can we tell people? Yeah. Door, doorknob comments at doorknob comments. And then our Ooh. URL is doorknobcomments.com. Yeah. And we have a Facebook page, which is also named the same thing. <laughs> Any social media presence or content? Um, I do, I do, but it's it's become increasingly less professional. (laughs) Instead, I just post pictures of my pets and uh, chickens that I bake when I'm stressed out. Okay, (laughs) pictures of the cats and then pictures of the cooked chickens. Yeah, I like how you think I'm a cat person. Did you say cats? It's because Greg no dog. I, oh, dog oh, pets. Cat. No, it's just it's yeah. the, the uh-huh. audio. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, I have a dogs. dog. I have a dog, but uh, I I do cook, and sometimes I cook when I'm stressed out, and then I post pictures of it online. That's basically yeah. it's very wholesome. Okay. Me too. I made Actually. some latkes today. I haven't really? shared them yet. Sounds delicious. Pets mm-hmm. kind of sounds like cats, but mm. it doesn't really sound like dogs. Yeah. Um, so very good thanks for your time and then you'll have to come back thanks for having me when you are starting to take patients on um oh yeah a lot of fun when i when i get into when i've finished school and stuff i'll come back and i'll tell you how i'm newly converted to whatever are you still coaching um not right now i'm a little bit in between focusing on uh, i'm trying to do some volunteer work and uh, focus on, you know, the mental health transition a little bit. So. I was just asking in case people were looking for coaching. You sound really excellent, but sadly for them, you're not. <laughs> well, maybe on clients. a maybe <laughs> on a select basis, mm-hmm. on a select basis. But um, you know, mostly I'm looking at a, a more holistic approach to the arts rather than uh, maybe a business one at this moment. Very good. Very good. All well, right. thank you and. Um, enjoy the rest of your week. All right. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Take care. Have a good afternoon, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having us. One disclaimer, this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment.